most objects in the world reflect light and those that produce light don't last very long. They're not archival like fluoro paints and inks. They fade mm -hmm. really quickly and things that are shiny, they get scratched and they degrade so quickly, but they feel great while they're there. To the 31st episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release an episode every two weeks, and on the off weeks, I publish an article on the Pine Copper Lime website, which features images and maybe a bit more information about the artist I'm going to interview. First and foremost, thank you everyone so much who participated in last month's fundraiser for the Australian bushfires. Together we raised over $2,000 for Wires Australian Wildlife Rescue Organization. I was so delighted to see the generosity of people from all over the world. I'm going to be sending out those thank you screen prints to Norway, Scotland, Russia, New Zealand, Thailand, Germany, England, Canada, Austria, the US, and across Australia. That is a global community of printmaking people coming together. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers, join the party. My guest this week is Dr. Tony Curran. Curran's interview marks the first ever episode of Pine Copper Live recorded in person in Tony's studio. Thanks to the new equipment I was able to purchase through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. Supporters like Brandy Diesel, who joined up at the Pine Copper Love Fest level. Brandy, you are amazing. Thank you so very much. Please let me know if you ever need me to dog sit or be emotional support if you've ever just cut your bangs. If you want to join Brandy in the party, you can go to patreon.com slash pinecopperlime or just follow the link in the show notes. Tony is a lecturer at the Center for Art History and Art Theory at Australian National University. His practice explores humans' interaction with technology and their fellow humans in our post-humanist age. Primarily an artist working in painting and drawing, Curran experiences printmaking through the collaborative lens of the various residencies and print studios throughout Australia he attends. Also, in this interview we do mention the existence of suicide, so if that's not something you or someone you're listening with feels like hearing about today, maybe skip this one for the time being. Tony has a huge brain, and we get deep right quick in this interview. We'll talk about philosophy, psychology, pixels, portraiture, and what it means to live a good life. So sit back, relax, and prepare to get your philosophy on with Tony Curran. Hey Tony, how's it going? Really good. Excited to be here. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for joining me. <laughs> Which is this? In my studio. <laughs> I would say this is a red letter day for Pine Copper Lime. Why's that? Um, this is the first in-person interview. The first? In the history of this podcast. Holy moly. I know. I was able to- Does that to... mean it's the best? That's going to be up to you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no Pressure's on. Sure. If it's the worst podcast, 
it might have the best sound quality, so it might even. It out. might even out. Yeah, yeah. yeah the sound, the sound nerds will really, uh, will really be into it. It's the first in-person recording. It's mm-hmm. been made possible by new equipment I picked up thanks to our incredible Patreon supporters who are putting their money behind what they love and enjoy and what they want to have out in the world. So a big thank you to all of you guys for making that happen. You know who you are. I feel like this is also a bit of a watershed moment because you were the first artist that I've ever talked to who works non-figuratively. Ah, interesting. So you also have a heavy burden to bear to make it a good one for all the non-figurative artists out there. First one that works abstractly. You were the first one who works, who has a uh, a large part of their of their practice is what I would consider in the non-figurative world. Yeah, as I'm sure we'll get into, it's a bit more complex than that in your process. So yeah, you were you were leading the charge not only for in-person interviews but also for all the non-figurative people out there who. Who might want to come on a podcast someday and talk about it? That's a lot of it. responsibility, yeah. and I will do my best. Um, you'll be, you'll be, you'll be fine. <laughs> so I guess we met in Sydney in I, January in, or February. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then because um, you were doing a little work at Cicada Press, and I got to see the beautiful etchings that you were working on then, yep. which was really, which was quite a treat. And then since then, also, you've been working at Megalo, um, where, of course, my partner and Pine Copper Lime editor works as well. Mm-hmm. So I've gotten to see some of the printmaking side of your work kind of off and on yep. as well. But for those of you who are listening and don't know Tony, I'm going to ask you to give us the who you are, where you are, and what you do rundown. Okay. So I'm an artist. I predominantly, I suppose, would call myself a drawer and a painter. But over the last um, few years, I've been working very collaboratively with people across, um, you know, psychology, print media, computer science, poetry, uh, and others, um, and, and become really interested in the relationship between the individual in a very cybernetic and process-oriented society. And print media has become this really interesting way in to understand process and uh, the machine in relation to a practice which in drawing and painting which is usually really free and expressive etc i also teach at the anu school of art and design i teach into painting and foundation studies which includes life drawing also precise drawing and model making i teach in art history and theory and subjects like cyber culture and um lots of uh, theories of the image, various different kinds of um, subjects around what it, what an image means in today's day and age. And I also teach into painting, uh, and I've just finished a subject there called Painting in the Photo Digital Age, which usually includes some kind of relation to print media, whether that's cyanotyping, photography, um, the screen print, the digital interface with Photoshop, etc. So that's kind of the broad gist of yeah. Of me. So not much. So you're saying you're not, there's not, you don't a, have, yeah. you're not up to much. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm across a lot and I've found some really interesting threads between them, which have, which I've been following more and more. So mm-hmm. the more I extend myself out, the more I find threads through, which um, help connect everything together in a concise and more and more increasingly concise way. Got a few things going on um, and what you do, but I'd love to dive into your current practice a little bit more Mm -hmm. 
um, a little down the road. I always like to start though with sort of how you ended up here. Mm-hmm. So please let us know like where you grew up and what role yeah. art and art consumption or art making had during yep. that time. I grew up in Sydney, in the suburbs of Sydney. Art had very little, to, like visual art had very little to do with anything I did other than the fact that I was a massive Astro Boy fan as a kid <laughs> um, and I was a big cinema head. Um, but I was, a, I was musically inclined and my family had a long kind of lineage of musical participants, creators and performers. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, I, I, I think I chose visual art as a pursuit over music because I ended up, you know, doing the thing that every Australian does, which is to grow up and realize that you haven't seen the world. And mm. to, I got a credit card and I went to um, Iceland and Europe. And as soon as I got to those places, I just got a whole different idea of what culture was and how images play into that. And I found that when I was bored or didn't want to talk to the people I was traveling with, I would be drawing constantly. And I thought that was quite a surprising thing to discover about myself. But then in Austria, I went to an exhibition at the Albertina Museum, which was an Egon Schiele exhibition, mm. which then I, I found those images quite powerful. They were charged with all kinds of different things like torture and anguish and eroticism and lots of different things. So uh, basically... All the things that like strike the, a chord in a young man's heart. With, yeah. a, with a 21-year-old, yeah. 20-year-old heart. Um, <laughs> Also that it would be exhibited in a museum, that gamut of content, but also the sensitivity in which, you know, a line could convey so much. As soon as I came home from that trip, I finished my psychology degree, which I was studying at the time, and then enrolled in art school um, with uh, a little persuasion. So on the last day of that trip in Europe, I lost a cousin to suicide Mm -hmm. and I built this narrative around the fact that she was someone who couldn't be herself in today's world Mm. because of the kind of, I suppose, now I come to understand that these cybernetic infrastructures in which we gear society, which mean that certain things have to patch in to society in certain ways and that's individuals too. So I created this narrative that actually she fell victim to that partly because she couldn't do what she wanted to do. So I said, screw it, I'm gonna do what I wanna do. And I decided just to go to art school, learn how to draw. And I started pursuing some of those psychological interests through drawing, creating Mm -hmm. drawing narratives through a master's program, which for some reason accepted me on the basis (laughs) just that I had a psychology degree on nothing else. So I was actually quite lucky to get in there. And I thought I was gonna make comic books, but there was one teacher there who liked all the errors of my drawing and sort of pushed me into more interesting new terrains and then I found that really interesting to explore and ever since then I've been finding ways to think about what we imagine or or what we feel like a self to be in an age that is post-humanist so in an age where we don't trust humanist rationality or philosophy or those ways of how a person ought to be um, and I've got and I found that there's some really interesting paradoxes around technology and that um, idea of the human and the individual in a post-humanist world that are have a lot of interesting hypocrisies and paradoxes and things like that so I, I try my best to explore those and then I moved to Wagga Wagga basically because my wife got a job at the ABC there and 
I saw it as an adventure. And then it turned out that there was an art school there that was actually quite healthy when I was there. And um, there was a supervisor that was keen to bring me on into a PhD program exploring mm -hmm. those kinds of uh, issues. So I did a PhD there and that was amazing because it was just three to four years of just dedicated studio practice. So going back to that idea of being interested in the philosophy, being interested in what it is to make lead a good life and exploration that you can do through artwork, yeah. you just casually dropped the sentiment that we are in a post-humanist mm -hmm, world mm -hmm. because I think when people think of humanism, they often think of those questions. Mm. I'd love to hear you expand a little bit more on what you mean by a post-humanist world and how that mm. kind of squares with this pursuit of the big questions. Well, I suppose post-humanism, in a sense, is a rejection of humanist values, which was seen in modernism to build to a world that was quite anthropocentric, generating a society in which it only served humans. And by that, I should qualify that to mean white men. Yeah, that's uh, that's who a human was in 1600. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, 1950 even. You know? <laughs> True. Um, and so with all the issues that we face now, ecologically and politically and socially, there's just so much more awareness around the fact that there's so much more of a diversity of of what we consider humans to be, mm -hmm. but that actually, if we have to think about diversity of the human population, then actually it behooves us to think of diversity in the non-human situation, which is maybe an ecological sensibility uh, mm -hmm. to throw Tim Morton philosopher's mm -hmm. idea out there, but also thinking about how our actions affect the environment and then how that affects biodiversity and then how that affect, affects food and agriculture and then comes back ultimately to white men um, who, who <laughs> remain uh, too, too much, I suppose, in, in the hierarchies mm -hmm. of, of things as, as it is today. So right, simultaneously right. post-humanist and humanist at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, there's sort of three things you can break it down into. One is what I've been talking about, I suppose, is post-humanism. So everything mm -hmm. you know about post-modernism feeds into that, but it's, it's post a school or a post a paradigm of humanism. That's one way to break that down. Another way to break that down is the post-human. The human is obsolete. The human will give way to the singularity, which is the AI. And so, so we're post-human. The, the world is no longer of a human sort of thing. And then there's transhumanism, which is, yes, the humans are obsolete, but technology's here for to better us and we'll modify ourselves so mm -hmm. that we can become a sort of cyborg cybernetic. So where is printmaking gonna fit into that? <laughs> so what's really exciting about printmaking for me is uh -huh. that it is the precursor to a lot of technological ideas. When I think about the history of computers, the first thing I think about is sort of the automated loom, which was, was that 12, 1400? Well, I can't remember, but it's the first programmable computery thing. Mm. Um, but then also, if you think about reproducibility and storage of data, the, the printing press was really the first thing that could proliferate mm -hmm. information in a very compressed way mm -hmm. uh, that could then be transmitted to loads and loads of people to usher in periods mm -hmm. like the Reformation of yeah. the Catholic Church. And uh, also it was a way to transmit subversive information that could yes. be hidden, documented, but also personal at the same time is one of the things that I find really fascinating is yeah. that you have something on paper you can slip it between your your straw mattress and the ground yep. should 
the Inquisition come knocking. That's right. Yeah. And now we can do that with our phones under the pillow. You know? <laughs> right. it's like the Inquisition come in. Yeah. But for me, I suppose, a couple of things have happened for me with print media. One being that I was making works that were engaging technology already, but as a painter and a drawer, you're so free to do whatever you want. And technology is this thing that actually has a myth or a rhetoric around it that you can do even more with mm -hmm. technology. But actually, I don't think technology is like that at all. And I think when you apply technology to a problem, you limit mm -hmm. the kinds of possibilities that yeah. are there. And this became really interesting to me when Ben Rack, who ran Throwdown Press, he looked at my paintings and he thought that there was a relationship between how I mixed color and went from screen to painting that had a relationship to the print ethos of, of screen printing. And, and what I found as soon as I started working with him was how much all of the ideas that I had couldn't be done because of the feasibility of setting up a collaborative printmaking process. But then because of that, there were all these other things that I started to think about learning more about the process then enabled me to see, okay, well, how does this process proliferate and what happens when you do X, Y, or Z? Um, and it turned out I was more interested in what it did when it did C, M, Y, or K. Mm. Uh, so getting into those half tones as a way into color language for screen printing, but then started to exercise this muscle around optical texture through color using the C, M, Y, K. Uh, and so I found that when you collide you know, a series of processes with another series of processes, you get this really strange set, sets of interference patterns between the projects that develop a whole new set of possibilities to to uncover. Yeah, so it's just this thing that's kind of followed me mm -hmm. through, and and every time I do it, it just creates new ways of seeing seeing my work. As someone who moves between painting, which of course is a more solitary activity. And printmaking, do you think that part of your intuition to almost always collaborate when you engage in print media is partly because of that kind of interest in human interaction that happens with that technology and sort of capitalizing on it while you have it as opposed to the bit of the solitary practice? When someone wants to work with you collaboratively and they don't want to charge you money for their <laughs> services, for me it's, hey, here's someone who wants to invest in, mm -hmm. in the studio yeah and I get super excited about that and I want to know why they want to and I want to and I want to do something that can work with them because I know that I'm going to learn a hell of a lot with it with Tim and Claire for example I was rosining some plates the other day and I completely forgot how to do it and Claire just mm -hmm. noticed that and, and was helping me with that I don't know anything about lithography so I've made some proofs with Tim already in lithography as a stepping stone to go further but lithography is so complicated I have no idea yeah. what I'm doing with that and I didn't know how to screen print so part of it was this expertise and this shortcut if I want to make a series of screen prints here's an opportunity to feasibly do that because I'm there's someone that knows it through and through and and, and they can they can do that I have even before printmaking I did set up situations which were participatory drawing scenarios that engaged the public. I was studying this question of, okay, well, what is a portrait in the humanist age? And then what is it in the post-humanist age? And in the humanist age, it's sort of a picture of a person that captures their essence, right? But in a post-humanist age, when we don't believe in the essence of a person, it's got a different kind of currency. And I did so through the idea of participation and relational aesthetics. And I had these projects 
probably the one where I really hit my stride was in 2013 at the National Portrait Gallery. I was sat in the Gordon Darling Hall for 33 days straight in a seat and there was another seat opposite me and whoever sat in that chair, they knew that they were posing for a portrait because it was Mm -hmm. signage and and whatever. There was enough signals for them to know that if they sat in that chair, I would draw them for as long as they sat and I would do so uh, until they got up and left. I drew something like 194 portraits over 33 days at the National Portrait Gallery, but it was this way of testing the possibility for portraiture and relational aesthetics. And then a couple of years later, I did another project where people made appointments to sit. In all these projects, I was interested in them asserting their own ideas about how to present themselves, how they want to present themselves, their agency. It was being drawn so they could get up and walk off whenever they want. And and I was drawing these on iPads and then I was able to email the participants their portrait. And then Wagga Wagga Art Gallery asked me to do uh, another one there. And so I made this one where they book appointments and then every appointment's double booked. So they got forced to do portrait sittings with a stranger or with Mm. someone they weren't expecting to. And they had to figure out how that was going to work. So I was interested in messing with it a little bit, but at the same time offering that, I suppose that bait of the portrait, which a portrait, if it's nothing else, it's an opportunity where the subject gets seen. And I think that's Mm -hmm. part of the appeal of participation in a portraiture is having this thing where it's like someone spent a lot of time looking at me and, Mm -hmm. and seeing me. Yeah. Hearing you talk about your work before, that idea really interested me, that that connection between the person doing the portrait and the person sitting, you know, that kind of rarity in which we give someone full attention mm. in a increasingly chaotic and distracting world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to have that exchange of energy, we mm. schedule time for it because yep. everything else is completely competing with it. So we've been talking about your work in kind of an umbrella way, some of the ideas behind it, how you've come to the practice that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would also like to talk about specifically the practice of non-figurative printmaking mm. because it is so unusual mm. as printmaking is such an illustrative, such a narrative form. Many, many reasons behind that that we could go into maybe in this part of the discussion as well. But it is really unusual to see non-figurative prints and it's really unusual for those prints to receive accolades as well. And so Mm. I'd love to hear you just sort of speak about that as somebody who has a diverse practice and you've seen both sides. Yeah, so when I got involved with print, with Ben, through screen print, one of the things that the first question I thought of was like, why would anyone want two of something (laughs) or more? Of something. And this interview is over. This interview is over. <laughs> well, yeah, and so I was a painter and a drawer, but I was also digital as well, and I was, yeah. I was struggling with that question of, okay, you make something that's infinitely reproducible, right? And so, mm-hmm. why would you sell one, and what does that mean mm-hmm. in terms of how you treat people's access to it? Anyway, so lately, um, I suppose the most recent non-figurative print that I've made was during my residency at Megalo Print Studio and Gallery which is here in Canberra, uh, and I encourage everyone to apply for a residency who listens, Mm -hmm. who has a printmaking background, because it's an amazing um, program with really great support uh, for international and national and local. Uh, That spills over. So (laughs) I was in the screen printing studio, and what I proposed that I would do was a perverse twist on what I had done with screen print with Ben Rack, uh, with him, I really explored the language of CMYK halftones. But one of the things that I kept finding was that 
if I skipped one step in the CMYK halftone process, I would end up with RGB pixels. Mm -hmm. And that step is basically just to change the color mode from RGB to CMYK in Photoshop. But the RGB color mode was gorgeous mm. and it was really luminous and really seductive and really interesting. But you can't print from that because RGB, red, green and blue, is uh, an additive color mix, which means you're adding light to the more kind of color you add, you get white. Whereas with subtractive color, which you know most people are more familiar with, um, as you add cyan, magenta and yellow, you get like a dirty brown and then you add black to get black. So it's it's perverse to think about making RGB pixel colors in screen printing ink because you know it's going to add up to, to zero. So then the more I started thinking that, the more I started musing on the idea that actually the color language that we're most familiar with in the 21st century is an RGB color language. You know, our screens are built on that and pixels are built on that. And so I thought I'll find a way to do RGB color mixing halftones. Uh, but then what I ended up doing was just making these really wiggly combinations like gestural abstractions of red, green and blue mm -hmm. uh, as a way to, to test optical mixing, which is how, you know, if you think about the impressionists or the little daubs of color that then right, right, yeah. your eye mixes rather than you have to mix on the, on the canvas or the palette. And I, I started finding that like actually different ways that you structured which wiggle in the foreground was blue which wiggle in the foreground was red or or green and if you switch the mid and foregrounds of, of each of those works of each of those color combinations then actually they aggregated to a different color and if you zoomed out then you got a different color and you sort of could get more color variance out of out of working that way than you could uh, if you subtractively mixed color over so then i i also got clued in by one of my computer science colleagues, uh, Ben Swift, who was talking to me about how pixels these days have been completely redesigned. They, once upon a time, were just rectangles of red, green, and blue side by side, and they would equal a pixel. Right. Nowadays, they have different shapes, and sometimes they include just straight white lights, and you know there, there might be a circle of red and a triangle of blue and a bar of green, in, hmm. and in different proportions than, than equal to equal one pixel. And then the rationale behind that is that screens and applications are compete, you know, manufacturers are competing with each other to have the most engaging screen. Right. So certain pixel shapes handle text really well, whereas other pixel shapes handle other things really well. And mm -hmm. so depending on how they're marketing their screen, they can seduce you through their pixel structure. Uh, and so I, I kind of found that really fascinating and interesting and I wanted to make my own pixels that seduced on their own but then explored the language of gestural abstraction through the most um, sort of loud attention hoarding mm -hmm. way possible. Uh, so I, I made these things and, and what screen printing enabled me to do was to make multiple uniques. So coming back to that problem of why would I make two of something? So, so I've made these like pixels in paintings recently as well, but there's no, you wouldn't make two different combinations of the same thing because they wouldn't look similar enough unless mm -hmm. I was to build stencils, but I don't really want to do that. Um, <laughs> but screen printing, for, for screen printing, the stencil is like the genius of the medium in many ways, um, which is that 
you know, you have a stencil and you can put green through it and then you can wash it out and put red through it Mm -hmm. and you can wash it out and put blue through it or or anything. And so because I had the stencils, I then had the ability to test and change combinations of color with those. And so now I've got these sort of sets of 12 uh, variations on red, green and blue screen prints from, mm-hmm. from that and so they're these loud things that i call attention machines <laughs> uh-huh yeah. yeah 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 that will seduce on their own right That's yeah the, yeah and, and draw people in and yeah what what i'm trying to do is i'm trying to make i'm trying to make a work that people pay attention to and then that attention gets sucked up by it but then the thing gives them more attention for themselves so that they can go in the world and pay more attention. So I'm trying to make an artwork that's a machine mm-hmm. that does that. I don't know if it does and I don't know how I would measure right. the success of something like that. Yeah. Um, but, but it's kind of this, this aim and this thing that I'm trying to do. And so by, making, by, by working with the, the screen-based culture, which are machines that are devoted to suck your time and not give you any, not give mm, you as much mm-hmm. back, but to just keep taking you. Yeah, the, the intention is that you'll walk away and you'll actually be able to pay more attention to the things that you care about afterwards. Right, right, because I think anyone who has had the temptation of, I'm feeling a bit shit today, mm. I'm just gonna look at Instagram. Mm. So that's not a fix, like that's not, you don't come out the other side of that feeling better you've just delayed feeling like shit with distraction yeah yeah and and another way i try to play with that thing of the instagram rabbit hole is that i you know i I try and develop projects where i can do something on instagram that is a in some way a hack for the mindless scroller Mm -hmm. the feed scroller so i had this project that was going on for a while on instagram where i would draw at the four by five which is like instagram's like sweet proportion it Mm -hmm. performs better than any other proportion and then um but if they then click on my profile they they would see that that work when trimmed to a square creates a grid throughout the feed that is like another drawing in and of itself um to to get people to think about oh okay well you know what is what is the medium you know and how is mm-hmm. it how does it build and how does it, you know what are the quirks of it and, and i think if people can think about instagram in that way then they think about it critically right then they can dip out more easily if they want to or they can dip more in more but mm-hmm. with that kind of viewpoint yeah 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 no i think that's 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 a really good like very sort of like concrete way that non-figurative art can function mm-hmm. in just a completely different way than figurative art can. Because mm. I think that one of the things that people will say about abstract art is that it'll be praised for being aesthetically pleasing, intuitive, this sort of thing, mm. but it doesn't often get talked about in non-academic settings in the ways that it can be critical, mm. in the ways that it can be functional to make you kind of question things mm. or plant seeds in minds um, and in its own way engage with the world that's separate from itself. Yeah. Um, whereas I think a lot of times people think of abstract art as just being that in and of itself, mm. that it exists for its own purpose yeah. as well. So, yeah. 
then there's really rare examples where abstract art just does its job on everyone. Uh-huh. And and I suppose Bridget Riley's the really like obvious example of this where her works feel like they're machines buzzing and moving when mm-hmm. when you look at them. And even if you don't like that, even if it makes you feel nauseous, even this that everyone notices that it does something. Right. And I think one of the biggest attacks that abstract art gets is that it's just colors or it's just shapes and mm-hmm. you know what's it do what does it do? But yeah, images, someone can get in there and assess something. It looks like it or it doesn't. Yeah. It's skillful or it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand it or I, I can legibly read something or I can't. But yeah, I, I suppose one of my interests with abstract art is to make something that someone looks at and says, yes, that's doing something, mm-hmm. which is why I call them machines. Yeah, because I think a lot of the time when people engage with abstract art, it is, of course, with its artist statement. And like mm-hmm. that's how the functionality performs. Yeah. And it's quite a bold undertaking, I think, to say what it sounds like what you're saying is like you want something that functions without that yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, people can often say like, well, what are the chances someone are going to pull exactly what you meant out of it? Mm. But what are the chances someone are going to pull exactly what you meant out of a figurative piece? Yeah, that's right. The same, you know, I think the same criticism, right? not even a criticism, it's called an observation, mm. can be leveled against figurative art as well yeah. so yeah I, I think it the non-figurative print world um or printed and print being used print media being used in a non-figurative way it's just scratching the surface mm. of it outside of a few um, of those modernists humanists you mm. know that that really um you know a lot of them who who printed with um, you know, a lot of them were printed, for instance, like with Ken Tyler, who was interested in all of that. And of course, like our Ken Tyler, the collection is here in Canberra and everything, yeah. which is interesting. But in terms of contemporary print artists who mm. are working in, in non-figurative ways, it'd be interesting to see kind of if that's going to have maybe a bit more of a renaissance as well. And, yeah. and work that's not just... Because I think if you look at something like... Motherwell, who is making beautiful non-figurative prints, mm. it's a, also a reflection, very, very, in a concrete way, against the beautiful non-figurative paintings, right? Mm-hmm. So it's almost just doing something really similar in a different medium, mm. but working with the um, philosophical and technological realities of printmaking to create non-figurative work in and of itself Mm. that's not just a reflection of a very successful style of painting Mm. at a more accessible price point um, would be really is really interesting that's part of the reason why I think that particular aspect of your practice is really fascinating Mm. yeah yeah and I think in a way print maybe correct correct me if I'm wrong I've sort of made some assumptions around print and and the relationship to the art world where you kind of needed someone like Ken Tyler to come and say hey come and do something and I'll do whatever you want which I think is out of the scope for almost any other Mm. print media studio bar a few that have popped up but it's you know if you look at places like Crown Point Press or Pace Prints you Mm -hmm. know it seems like they're going they're going for the most marketable artists. And as it happens, the most marketable artists turn out to be painters because the right. paintings are the most easily photo reproducible, easy to build a brand around a painter. And historically, painters have been at the top of any kind of hierarchy mm-hmm. of any art structure. Yeah. Um, which then 
kind of means that if you if you look at say who Crown Point Press seem to be targeting and and who they show videos of, they all seem to be painters or sculptors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which is which is a funny thing, and, and probably explains a little bit of why print has a has a strange relationship to abstraction. Mm-hmm. I suspect. No, I think you're, you've, yeah, that's really spot on, and you know, print has that relationship to painting because in a lot of ways, I think major gallery is just going to invest in a painter because mm. they can get more mm. and they can get they can get more money for an oil painting mm. than you can for like by by making an investment in a new artist without an established market you can set that price point mm. of an oil painting higher yeah so you can you can pay that chelsea rent mm. easier it's it's really comes down to a lot of that um and at the same time, Dollars and cents. as an artist, I'm kind of hesitant around making something that I would make as a painting as a print mm-hmm. because I don't want to make a cheaper price point thing. You mm-hmm. know, I don't want, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing because value with print has been a thing since the invention of lithography, I, I suspect, you know, or no, even etchings. Woodcut. Well, woodcut. I mean, that, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it has had, it's, it's been a more accessible yeah. way to get an image of the Virgin Mary in your house in 1555. I mean, yeah. yeah, it's there. It's part of it. And so then someone can come to a print and not see what its value is if they're thinking, which I suppose is why galleries don't like to put prices on works because they want you to think about the work. They don't want you to think about it mm-hmm. in relation to a dollar value or... You know, it's like when you put two artworks together, you create a comparison. When you put a price tag next to an artwork, yeah. you create a comparison. Would I rather $4,000 or would I rather this rectangle? Yeah, whereas, you know, print is more accessible, so it does sell more readily mm-hmm. if, if you aren't hanging out with the super rich all the time. Right, but right. I try to only hang out with the super rich, but, yeah. you know, sometimes. I try. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, um, they, they pull me back in as <laughs> middle class. Oh, the proletariat. It's so hard, so hard to break away. Yeah, it's so hard to break away. So I would, I would also like to talk about your current body of work that mm-hmm. you're working on. Yep. Um, when you say children's holding screens, yep. not to be confused with screens in screen printing, which is where we've just come from as well. Yes. But you mean... Screens as in tablets, iPhones, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Can you first sort of just describe sort of physically what these these look like? And then we can yeah. get a little bit into the background of what their function is. Yes, as, what they do. What they do, exactly. So the kids with screens is um, basically the way to think about it. It's a series of images that I'm making that are called that are titled growth potential one to three and growth potential number one has been printed. Tim Pacek and Claire Jackson at Megalow worked with me on these first edition of 16. And it's a, it's a print that's about 30 by 40 centimeters. It's, it's an image of a baby, maybe about the age of 11 months or so, holding but at the same time kind of ignoring uh, an iPad or iPhone. It's hard to tell via the image, but basically uh, it came about because I mentioned before about these participatory portrait drawing projects that I made. And with one of them that was 
done at Wagga Wagga Art Gallery. It was called Stay, and it was part of my part of another exhibition that I was doing. I invited people to book an appointment, and then they would come and they'd sit for a portrait. And maybe they'd bring their friends, and they'd all sit together or whatever for for an hour at a time, and then they could rebook if they wanted. But like all of these projects I've done, occasionally it's an opportunity for a parent to come with a kid that um, they actually just need some time mm. not holding a kid. And one of the surefire ways that we're able to do that with children these days is to give them a screen mm-hmm. and that can keep them entertained and occupied. Yeah, um, I would see that all the time with the art gallery. Yeah. Yeah, that's just like, hold this, go watch your show. Yeah. I need to be an adult right now. And there's very, like the galleries try, but there's not, not like much there at their level. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's all sort of above them and it's, it's, not, <laughs> it's not for them in, in quotation marks. Yeah. So then they don't really have... There's not a lot a of touch. Thing. There's yeah. not a lot they can see. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. They, they, they need it. <laughs> they need something. <laughs> and, and if their parents are looking elsewhere, then they're, you know, that's crap for them for other reasons. Mm-hmm. So there were a few where I just had these sittings where... It was my task for an hour to draw a kid with a screen and I would do that. And there's another one that I did in that same series where a mother sat her five-year-old in front of me with an electric guitar and basically the whole drawing is just a red wiggle because hmm. he was just running around constantly. It was really hard to, to chase him. <laughs> uh, but with screens, they could they could captivate a little bit more. So what it, what it is, is it's a three-color separation of an etching aquatint. So, so I spoke to Claire. Claire at Megalo mentioned that we could do something, we could do some etchings together. And then I kind of showed her, you know, what about an image like this? And she was totally up for it, but said maybe like two or three color separation would be really good. And she suggested like a blue, maybe a brown, maybe a yellow, I think, or a green or something. And and I thought, okay, she's almost at RGB. And mm-hmm. given I've been doing all this other stuff with red, green, and blue color separations, like the prints that I made with Michael Kempson were red, green, and blue aquatint color separations in etching on zinc. And um, the screen prints that we were talking about, the red, green, and blue attention machines. So I thought, let's run with this and we'll do this in, in that. And then it would kind of rhyme with this idea that, you know, I'm making something that's red, green, and blue. And what that does is activate as a kind of color language of the pixel but at the same time it also antiques the image a little bit makes mm. it a little kind mm-hmm. of nostalgic in a sense because things are to brown when you use red green and blue subtractively right. yeah, rather yeah. Than additively. so it's this weird thing where when you actually get a red showing through it's quite a vibrant red or it's quite a vibrant green so there are these really luminous sort of pops around the image but at the same time it sort of skirts around this idea of nostalgia and and, and a past archaeological thing. But, you know, why I'm interested in the kids with screens is that there's so much around the way that screen culture seduces us to pay attention. And personally, I was moved quite profoundly by the rise of Donald Trump mm. and that whole time mm-hmm. where at a certain point in my history, social media was there and the internet was there and you know, these beautifully rounded Apple products were there mm-hmm. to make us better people. But then what we found is that while technology makes us, it gives us the chance to be better people, it also 
gives other people the chance to have power over us. And it's a new kind of colonial project. In mm. fact, if you look at how social media and, and app development is working in the developing countries at the moment, they're, you know, um, it's increasingly catering towards illiterate users with predatory capitalism with subscription services that are yeah that, that whole thing is really interesting to me but yeah i love that there's like this thing that just comes to mind about predatory capitalism which is get them young and mcdonald's happy meals yeah. you know i mean it's yeah it's it's capitalism bread and butter yeah yeah and i'm at an age where i've got nephews and nieces and i've got and i've done these projects where you know i've seen how parents engage with kids and you go to restaurants and there sometimes there are kids with screens and sometimes there is not but there's usually everyone has a belief about it Mm -hmm. and i don't know what my belief is because i think kids can be exhausting yeah they got so much energy Mm -hmm. and then they can be really cranky and then if they've got a screen and you take it away they can be a nightmare because Mm -hmm. you know that must feel really unjust to them oh yeah (laughs) the color's gone where's my colory moving thing yeah um yeah well and of course as a kid like you have such little control over anything in your life that formation of personhood comes so much from like the outrage you feel from being told no yeah yeah and i think internet culture as well is one of call out so Mm -hmm. I'm sort of anticipating that people would have ethical feelings about, you know, a picture of a kid with a screen against, you know, that as maybe they see an image like that as being quite judgmental or maybe mm. they see an image like that as being, you know, reflecting something quite ugly about the world. I don't know. I don't Yeah. And I'm kind of so that's what I kind of want them to do. I want them to I want them to sit in the context of the attention machines and this whole overarching mission that I have to make work that creates attention as, as much as it absorbs it or pays interest in attention. And so I think these works have the opportunity to do so in a figurative language. Using the source material of portraits that I've made as data, as we all are now, mm-hmm. um, as individuals, these bits of digital detritus, um, the things that we've done, you know, come back down the track to, you know, in other targeted ways. And so I'm kind of curious about what happens when I just take little portions of these portrait projects that I've done where I've got portraits of over, probably over about 500 people um, doing different things. And if you put those together in different kinds of combinations, they they tell very different stories depending on how mm-hmm. you choose to network them. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm just kind of thinking of my niece who... Her parents, my brother and my sister-in-law, are both philosophy professors, big thinkers. Mm-hmm. And I think she's not going to get screens until she's three mm-hmm. or something like that. They, I can't remember. It was two or three or maybe even four. But they have done their research and decided that in terms of the way the brain develops, mm. There's like an age where it's sort of like, okay, then you can have screens sort of limited. Yeah. Um, so even when we were there visiting and they're using their TV to play music, mm. right, which I think a lot of people do, you know, turn it to the Amazon jazz channel or something and the little cover photo of whatever album's playing kind of bounces around the screen mm-hmm. and they put something over it. So she couldn't even see that. And she wanted to so mm. like so bad. She wasn't crawling quite yet yeah. when I would see her. But if anything that was in front of it kind of had slipped or moved, she would try and arrange herself in a way where she could get just this, this little sliver 
of the glowing yeah. box. Yeah. And when I think about it in terms of people who are our age mm-hmm. and really as the last bastion of people who grew up without handheld screens. Mm. Obviously, we had TV, mm-hmm. but TV was shit mm-hmm. in the 1990s, mm-hmm. you know, with very few exceptions. And goodness knows we didn't have HBO mm-hmm. in my house. You know, it was... You wouldn't have been allowed to watch HBO in the 90s, though. No, but you know, <laughs> parents went to bed, you know. Yeah, yeah, true, true. <laughs> um, we would have found a way. Um, but yeah, so that intimacy of your personal screen. Maybe yeah. that's like a big distinction. Yeah. Um, the TV shared, you have to fight with your brother for mm-hmm. what you're watching. Mm. The computer is shared, mm. but these are children who are getting that like completely personal experience of it's just you and your little screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and there's some, I mean, it's, it's shiny and it's luminous and it's like materials find it very hard to compete with that in in a lot of ways because they're they reflect light most objects in the world reflect right lights and those that produce light don't last very long mm-hmm. yeah uh, including animals you know yeah um, they don't live for long they tend to they're not archival like fluoro paints and inks they fade mm-hmm. really quickly and um so it's, it's funny, like things that are shiny, they get scratched and they degrade so quickly, <laughs> but they feel great while they're there. And I think, you know, they're there and these things are going to be obsolete, but there's so many more waiting to replace them. It's... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just seeing the cell phones that I've had since I got my first one, and I think 17. Yeah. And I, I didn't get Was my... Was that Nokia? Yeah. yeah, it was a Nokia, and you know, you text by... 51? Yeah. Nice. <laughs> and the autonomy that just having my own little communication device gave me. Yeah. I mean, it was completely, completely life-changing. Yeah. I think if, if I had been more popular, it probably could have done some serious damage. <laughs> but luckily... <laughs> but luckily, yeah, there were yeah. only about two people who wanted to message me. Um when we're trying to comprehend the change that this is going to have on us as humans mm-hmm. in our post-humanist world, it's a staggering undertaking that I don't think we're prepared for, but we still have to try mm. because it is so different from anything that has come before. Yeah, definitely. The, the sort of targeting that, you know, I got onto the Facebook analytics, the other the audience analytics mm. the other day um, to as a way to explore another way to sort of hack the feed a little bit to pr- provide a little oasis if I could into there. But that's, that's scary. <laughs> you can learn a lot about a city yeah. in there. Um, yeah. And, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't give you much about people, but you know, you can target different types of people, different kind of age mm-hmm. ranges. I think you can only target 18 plus, which is lucky. Yeah. Um, For now. For yeah. now, yeah. yeah. But you can target, and that's. Um, I think that's where it becomes a really good, really powerful colonial tool, you know, because there are geographically disparate, like, you know, there's wealth disparity in, in geography, and there's mm-hmm. wealth disparity in job titles, which you can also search for, and there's wealth disparity in all those kinds of different things. Yeah, it's that level of it's scary mm-hmm. to me, yeah. 
I've recently started to get emails from a service that compiles every everything that rates a podcast, how successful a podcast is. Mm. I found one for the art world. The, oh, I want to talk okay, about that. Yeah, yeah one sec. So says. it's. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't sign up for it. I didn't ever know about it until they just started sending me emails. And because up until this point, as far as I can tell, it actually is difficult to, to, to and really be very time consuming to figure out exactly how many people are listening to your podcast. Mm-hmm. Because you, it's not easy to do through, like iTunes kind of has like a beta thing and I don't even know where to find oh. it in Spotify. And so it's, it's not certainly, like YouTube where you just got that many views. Yeah. Yeah, SoundCloud is the easiest because it'll tell you individually, but how many listens it's had. But yeah, that's kind of it. And then it really would take a lot of time to go through and you know find, p- compile it all together, and then try and figure out like where is it overlapping since it's hosted on SoundCloud. Is that actually already counting this? Mm-hmm. It's in a way, it's just it's just you. It would take so much effort to do it. This these this company's providing this service, mm-hmm. and. Not yet a sponsor. Not yet a sponsor. I'm not naming them. Um, But no, it's, it's, I, I've been kind of consciously avoiding looking at it. Yeah. Because I don't want to chase listens. I don't want that to be a motivation of who I speak with about what. Yes. Uh, And I think it would be really strange if I was to look at it and say, oh, it looks like Mm. This this person got twice as many listens as this person. Mm. I'm never gonna talk to some someone some, doing abstract art. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. Abstract yeah. ones are gone. Done. Yeah, you know, like however yeah. I would try and because it doesn't tell you why. Yes. You know, it 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 doesn't tell you why it gets more listens. All you have is the raw data. And anyway, so I've, I've kind of consciously not been chasing that. Yeah. Because I just think it it would just completely fuck me up mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. terms of how I go about making this undertaking. Yeah. But like every other creative output that we put out into the world gets judged now. You get immediate feedback on it. Mm-hmm. Immediate and somewhat anonymous feedback on it from the internet. Yeah. Which is a completely bizarre, brave new world. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, audiences, they can use words better than the algorithms I think can target a qualitative analysis on, mm-hmm. on something like I'm sure you get comments and it's like oh mm-hmm. cool I know what someone liked about it and, yeah yeah I know what someone didn't like about it yeah yeah totally um I don't know what this tells you about audiences but I only get comments that could be perceived as negative or let's say like non-affirming mm-hmm. on Facebook See, it's oh. Instagram is just like this is amazing. That's You're so amazing. True. You keep going, and then, and then on Facebook, you know, it might get like just another, yeah, just another woman complaining that she can't yeah. make it in a man's world or something like oh, that. What? <laughs> like, it's yeah. it, it tells you something about the demographics of or the culture of the two social media platforms. But yeah, yeah, it's there's. A, yeah. Yes, that's so interesting. It's, yeah. And and Facebook is the one under fire for so much of the ugly, scary part of no democracy because it seems mm-hmm. to just be this space of, or like um, if someone's upset about something, they've shared a article that validates their point of view. Yeah. It's, it's never like a 
positive article. Yeah. It's always a, a sort of piece of investigative journalism where someone's done something wrong or, know. you know, or, or an opinion analysis about the state of the tertiary education sector <laughs> in a bad way, you know, like, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. right. Whereas Instagram, it's like, be you today. Remember to breathe, feel positive. Or, yeah. You know, an image of food or <laughs> something delicious. Absolutely. Or, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's definitely interesting. I just today on Facebook, um, at some point in my Facebooking, I must have liked a page that just is called like, I support my local farmer's market. Like mm -hmm. I'm sure 10 years ago or something, I liked it. Mm. And it came by feed that was just a link to a story that's like, another teen girl dies after HPV vaccination. <laughs> I'm just like, all right, that's enough of that. Like, <laughs> I don't Whoa. need, like, why did my local local farmers markets get politically active? Like what? Like what is going on? In that way. Oh, and it, I feel like that just feels like such a little snapshot of the algorithms and the rabbit holes and the kind of like radicalization that can happen yep. to people because of these just sort of adjoining views and adjoining subcultures. Yeah. Is like something sounds so innocent. Who doesn't want to support their local farmers market? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now all of a sudden they know that you're, uh, you have this political thing. You, yeah, right. But the, you know, it's sort of it was always there, just less powerful, I suppose. Like there were always mm. inferences that could be made from census data and all these various things that people yeah. could use to model their political ambitions or their mm. business ambitions. But yeah, now it's pretty, it's pretty wild. And it's just, and it's more, it's more accessible to more people. Yeah. So the chances that it's going to be used for evil yeah. is just higher yeah. because of that. So, yeah, that, I mean, that's my, my printmaking practice. And yeah. Printmaking practice. <laughs> <laughs> Insane. Yeah. 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 No, but to, I guess, yeah, if we're going to, we can kind of, kind of bring it, reel, reel it in, reel in our conspiracy theory here. Would I really like what you were saying about this new body of work you're doing with the kids with the screens mm. is that innate within it is your curiosity about their reception yes which of course could only exist in a world with of our personal screens yeah because without the without the sharing it on instagram that you're going to do the sharing that i'm going to do mm -hmm. on my platforms of your work when mm. the podcast comes out kind of how would you really know what a reaction would be beyond the people who came to the exhibition. Mm. And while we all have our horror stories, for the most part, people don't come up to an artist at an exhibition mm -hmm. in a... There's one at every show. There's one at every show. reasonably bad. <laughs> this yeah. is something just completely, um, yeah, like out of this world, okay, boomer kind of, yeah. you know sentiment yeah but yeah so so it is it it is the um a bit of the snake eating its own tail in that way of it's it's the the work that's about the consumption yes that is curious about the consumption of itself i mean i suppose that thing about you you never do know what reaction the work is getting from other people but there's this you know famous American art critic, Michael Fried, who talks about the artist as the first beholder. Mm -hmm. So while, while I may not be the representative of all the beholders, I'm sort of, I'm the first one that then notices something and then goes, oh, this is something that's, that's got potential to do X, Y, or Z. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I, I won't know if it does the thing that it does for other people, but semiotically, you know, you can read it and you can go, cool, there's not enough content for it to be read only this way. There's not enough content for it to be only read this way. There's enough little bits to anchor that the things have these relationships so that they talk to each other in a, in a linguistic pictorial system. So as a setup, it's sort of like, cool, there's, there's something there. Um, but you're right, like at an opening, everyone bar that one person is going to say, fantastic, what a great job. Mm -hmm. And um, I'll make inferences based on not getting another invitation by that gallery or by getting another invitation yeah. by that gallery or yeah. or whatever. And, and you, you do your best for that. But yeah, it's it's this thing where I think every artwork does something and then trying to make the rectangle do, so, like trying to steer that something that a work does to a particular activity. Um, you know, every, every rectangle has a, has an inertia, you know, mm -hmm. recently you've been sharing prints that aren't rectangles, actually, the plates <laughs> are, you know, shape. Yeah. They're yeah. Insane. They're really interesting. But, uh, but, but they end up on a piece of paper. So they're rectangles. I was going to say, or they're on Instagram. So they're still a rectangle. So they're still a rectangle. Yeah. yeah. And, and sometimes, you know, basically if, if a Robert Ryman, you know, what Robert Ryman is to a white canvas and then blank canvas and page, whatever, there's just these various, like every rectangle does something. So I suppose I'm trying to just see if I can make rectangles do this thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love it. I feel like that's like a really great little place to kind of wrap up because it speaks to, I think, something that's really at the at the heart of what I've seen from what I know of your practice is that is just as you say like you're looking for it to do something yeah. because you do work figuratively and non-figuratively and collaboratively and across many media but you're searching for that rectangle to be that little functionality that mm. little machine yeah um and it's a big undertaking and you have to go into it with a certain amount of fearlessness because in almost all instances, art rectangles, they will fall short. Like you yeah. have to, you just, you just yeah, have yeah. to know that. And I love that, that you seem undaunted by that mm. and that you just see it as part of the process yeah. and the exploration is, uh, is really great. Cool. So, yeah. And that whole machine thing, I stole it from a guy called Levy Bryant who wrote a paper called Machine Oriented Aesthetics. It's really cool. Okay. Check it out. Link in the show notes. Link in the show notes. Link in the show notes. <laughs> well, beautiful. Well, Tony, would you tell people where they can follow your rectangles? My rectangles on Instagram <laughs> at Tony G Curran. That's T-O-N-Y, the letter G, Curran, C-U-R-R-A-N. Uh, my website is TonyCurran.net. Um, no G in that, just TonyCurran.net. Twitter slash at Tony Curran, Facebook slash Tony Curran Art. Okay. Yeah. I'll put a link to all of that. What does the G stand for? Jared. Jared. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Tony Curran. I have a rivalry with a Scottish actor who coincidentally has the same birthday as me. What? Same I, year too? No, no. He was born in 1969. So if you want to follow him, follow Tony Curran <laughs> 69. And I, a lot of his fans follow me by accident. So I get retweeted in a lot of you know, TV show 
sort of tabloid news. I love it. Is... I love it. I'll um, I will tag him. Shout when out to I... Tony Curran of, of Scotland. Yes. You know what? I will um, I will tag him when I share your interview. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> so he gets to get to see like, why are all these printmakers following me? <laughs> yeah, he played Doctor Who. Uh, he played Vincent Van Gogh in the Doctor Who episode. So oh. some people actually think that I might be him because I have art stuff going on. This is getting very confusing. It's getting very confusing. It's very yeah. confusing. Link in the show notes. Link in the show notes to that episode of Doctor Who. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, well, thank you again and thank you for um, being my first in-person interview. Thank you for letting me be. Yeah, um, and let's, let's do it again. Sweet. Okay. All right. Cool. Thanks, Tony. No worries. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again in two weeks' time when my guest will be Bob Blanton of Brand X Editions in New York City. Over the past 40 years, Bob and his team have produced editions of screen prints with everyone from Helen Frankenthaler to Jeff Koons. He's an incredible and humble storyteller, and I am honored to help share Brand X's legacy with you fine folks. Be sure to tune in. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help by Timothy Pauschak, and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>